Bill was one of those fathers, still is, that decided when his kids were born, he was going to do everything he could to be involved in their lives. Bill was a worker. He always had been. When he was growing up, he got a job at a really young age, and he poured himself into it. His dad had developed a strong work ethic within him, and he carried that ethic into his first job and his second job and on through college and then into his career. Bill was a hard worker. As a result of that, there was a bit of a collision with his desire to be invested in his kid's life and the work ethic that he had. It wasn't always easy for him to be home as much as he would have liked to have been. There's a lot of dads in this room that know exactly what I'm talking about. When he got married, he carried his work ethic into that relationship as well and and decided that he was going to invest hard in that marriage, wanting the relationship to be all that it could be. And he balanced that with work. He did it really well. And now all of a sudden, here's these children. He wasn't sure what he was going to do. This was Bill's determination. I like it a lot. He said, I'm going to spend as much time as possible with each one of my children individually. He didn't just want to spend time together as a family, though they did that. He wanted to separate, separate out each one of the kids and invest in their lives. And Bill has done it very, very well. His middle child is a young man named Levi. He and Levi share a lot of the same interest, and so it's easy for them to connect and to invest that way. One of their common interests is hunting. Not too long ago, Bill and Levi had planned a hunting trip. Bill was going to be out of town for work, and so they had to do a lot of the planning over the phone, but they did. When they'd get on the phone with one another, they would talk about where they were going to go, and they'd get excited. They'd talk about, like so many of us do, what they were going to shoot, and they got excited. They talked about what they were planning on eating, and that formed its own excitement, on and on and on. All the planning went. Bill was a big planner. He really was. And Levi was picking up on some of that. The people that were on either end of the phone could hear the excitement that these two had as they got closer and closer and closer to their time to go. The interesting thing is they left one detail out in all of their planning. And I'll share that with you in just a second. Bill got home from the trip that he was on, and they packed up the pickup and headed out to their hunting spot. They set up their tent. They built a fire. They cooked their first meal. It was absolutely fantastic. The detail that they had forgot, though, was to check the moon. Now, Bill always did that. Whether he was hunting or fishing, he always wanted to know the cycle that the moon was in. But they didn't check. Now, here they were out in the wilderness, tent set up, fire burning in front of the tent. They shared this meal, and there was no moon whatsoever. As a result of that, the stars were spectacular. Levi was sitting around the fire with his dad when he realized it. He got up and walked away from the fire, and he looked up into the sky. He was just mesmerized by it. Bill watched that for a while, and then Levi came back and sat down with him, and they talked for a while, and then Levi would get up and walk away from the, the fire and go stare at the stars again. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. The way they would describe it, they would say that the sparkling in the sky would pale, or not pale, would make any diamond necklace pale in comparison to what they were looking at. Gorgeous. So finally, Bill, under a a fit of inspiration, spontaneously decided that they ought to do something different than what they had planned. He said, hey, Levi, why don't we grab our sleeping bags? We will roll them out in the bed of the pickup and we will sleep under the stars. We'll be able to watch them all night long. So they did. Pulled their sleeping bags out, rolled them out in the bed of the pickup, climbed into them, instantly remembered how uncomfortable that is, put a a pillow behind their heads. They stared up into the sky and they looked at what God had created. It was inspiring. 
Bill says that they started to talk about all kinds of different things. They talked about school. They talked about girls. They talked about work. They talked about hopes and dreams. They shared all kinds of different things. It was just fun. These were the moments that Bill lived for with each one of his children. And then it got even better. As they got quiet after laying there for several hours, just staring at the stars, Levi broke the silence with this statement. Dad, if this is the wrong side of heaven and it's this spectacular, what do you think the right side looks like? Bill was thrilled. He was one of those dads, and I appreciate him so much, that longed to speak with his children about spiritual things. And and they had talked about those things for years and years and years. As his children were growing up, the things of God were always a part of their conversations. But that was almost always brought up by Bill or by his wife. And now all of a sudden, here they were laying in the bed of the pickup, and Levi opens the door. And they start talking about the things of God. It was great. Fantastic. That's exactly what Bill had longed for, and now he's experiencing it with his son. It doesn't get any better than that. I love that story, partly because of the fact that it just warms my heart, but the other part is this. It's not very often that you find young men or women that are thinking about the right side of heaven. It's not very often that you find young men or women that have their minds and their hearts focused on what heaven might be like. Typically, that's reserved for people that are a little more advanced in age or advanced in years. But here's Levi, like very few young men or women, thinking about what it's going to be like to be in the presence of God. Billy Graham has an interesting teaching on why it is that young people and older people see heaven differently. Now, let me say that, and then we're going to take a little side road here. Billy turned 95 years old this past Thursday, 95 years old. And he determined about a year ago that he wanted to preach one more sermon before the Lord calls him home. Billy has preached to literally millions of people around the globe. He has been in the company of presidents and heads of states. They have sought his counsel and his advice, and he has always directed them to the things of God. They have not always followed what he has advised, but he has always directed them to the Bible and to the things of the Lord. So as he was coming in on 95 years old, Billy decided that he wanted to preach one more message to the United States of America. He titled it, My Hope America. Some of you saw it the other night on TV. Some of you have seen it on the internet. Hopefully, if everything works, we'll introduce it to you in a a few months and show you what you could do with this message. And of course, Billy was going to preach what he hoped for America, and that's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he did it well. He did it well. 95 years old. Billy would tell you that when he was deeply involved in his ministry and traveling all over the globe, one of the things that he wanted more than anything was to be able to retire with Ruth at their log cabin in North Carolina and just sit on the porch and enjoy the sound of the birds and the creek that runs in front of that place. But God wanted him to keep on preaching, and he has, right up to 95. 95. In fact, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is producing a movie that will be released next spring called The Cross. looks really good. It came out of Billy's vision for what he wanted to see shared with his country one more time before he leaves. It's pretty inspiring. Now, with all that said, let me go back to what he says about the difference between young people and older people and how they see heaven. This is his teaching. He says, when you are young and restless... Home is the place that you long to escape. But as the battles of life begin to stack up for you, home is the place that you long to return. 
Now, he would take that and spiritualize the whole idea of it and say that when we are young and restless, heaven doesn't really matter. We're living in the moment. We're living our lives in our world, doing the things that we want to do, and we don't give much thought to what it's going to be like after this life is over. Everybody in this room knows what the immortality of youth feels like. You don't think much about death. But as you advance in years, it becomes very real. And with that reality, there tends to be a longing. Lord, I'm ready to come home. It's the way Billy felt. Like I said, in the early days of his ministry, when he was traveling all over the globe, there was a certain appeal for him in all of the flights that he would be on, many of them first class. There was a a strong appeal for the resorts that he would stay in and the five-star hotels and the restaurants that people would take him to. But after just a few years of that, those things lost their appeal. And what he wanted more than anything was that log cabin in the mountains of North Carolina. I don't really want to be out traveling, doing all this stuff anymore. That's the calling God's given me, so I'll do it. But Billy would say that what he longed for more than anything was to go back to that cabin. It makes perfect sense. It really does. Now, Billy would also teach this, that if we're not careful, we can start to live so much for heaven that we become no earthly good whatsoever. His teaching is we can become so heaven-minded that we really are no earthly good. And we have to be careful that that doesn't take place in our lives. There are some antidotes to that, and there are some ways to avoid it, though we should always hold on to that hope of heaven. It drives Christianity. When this life is over, I'm going to be in the presence of God. When this world is finished, I'm going to go and experience something that, well, really, I can't even imagine in this life. And I'm going to spend eternity uncovering the best of what God has created. The Apostle Paul would actually say these words. Billy Graham would tell you, and so would many other preachers, myself included, that this is the key to remembering your purpose in this life. This is the key for us remembering that we have to live here and now before we get there. This is found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul writes, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Very simple little verse. Maybe you've heard people talk about theme verses that they live with. This is the verse that sums up my life. This is the verse I want to live by. This is the verse that drives me in everything that I do. And if you have heard that, and maybe you're one of those people that says, I've never found one of those verses, this could be it. Maybe you want to highlight this in your Bible or underline it. It's very simple, easy to memorize. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Now what I want us to do over the course of the next few moments is just pick that verse apart. And we're going to do it in two ways. So I'm going to encourage you to keep your finger always in Philippians chapter 1 as we bounce around through the Bible because we're going to come back to it several different times. Let me start this way. Let's just take the first part of that verse. For to me to live is Christ. Now that's a really curious statement that the apostle would make. For to me to live is Christ. What he's really saying is my life is going to be all about Jesus. And there are a number of Christians that would say the same thing, though continually miss the mark. I want to live for Jesus. I want to live about Jesus, but I'm not sure how to pull it off. They might even go so far as to say, preacher, tell me, how do I pull it off? Well, let me introduce 11 people to you that could help with that. Some of these names will be very familiar to you. Some of them, you're going to have to go deep into your spiritual memory banks, biblical memory banks, to grab hold of and Some of them may be brand new to you. We're going to go to the book of Acts. Keep your finger there in Philippians chapter 1. Turn back to the left, several books with me. 
Acts chapter 1, and I'll introduce you to these 11 people. These are the apostles that remain. Judas has committed suicide. Matthias has yet to be chosen. Paul has yet to be called by the Lord. So these are the 11 remaining apostles. Jesus has ascended into heaven. They have witnessed all kinds of miracles up to that point. They've seen him walk on water. They have watched him raise the dead to life. They saw him feed 5,000 people, 5,000 men, plus women and children, with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. They witnessed all of those miracles. He healed the sick right in front of them, and he ascended into heaven in a miraculous way, and they're left. They're left trying to figure out what to do. Here are their names. Acts chapter 1, verse 13. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Now you might wonder some of their backstories. I always do. I find it very curious to see how they became apostles. What was it about them that captured Jesus' attention so much that he called them into this new life? Well, here's some of their backstories. Five of them were fishermen. One of them was a tax collector. One was a politician. And four, we have absolutely no idea whatsoever about what they did before they became believers in Jesus Christ, followers of him and apostles. So we know some of their backstories. We know some of what led them to this point. Can you imagine what it was like for the fishermen when Jesus came to them and said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men? Can you imagine what it was like for Matthew, the tax collector, when Jesus said, hey, you can leave that booth and never worry about it again. Come and I will give you a new life. Probably pretty exciting, but at the same time, terrifying. This is all we know. And after three years with Jesus, they're left again trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. They had witnessed all these unbelievable things. They know that their charge is to preach the gospel, but now what are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to carry it out? Well, Acts chapter 1 shows us. We're going to go back to verse 8. These are Jesus' words to them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here they are in this upper room waiting for that to happen, waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. What a wait that had to be. It had to require some heavenly patience like they had never applied before. I want you to listen to the verse again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The Holy Spirit hadn't shown up yet, so they're somewhat powerless. They have no idea what they're going to do, but when the Spirit comes, it all changes. And this is how it changes. Read the last half with me again. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what you may not realize is that that is a verse that is applicable to every believer. Every Christian, during the days of Jesus' time on the earth, during the days right after that in the early days of the church, and today, that is a verse that is applicable to every believer. I want us to take the first half of that verse, right up to the semicolon, and just listen to how it would read. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, first half but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now we know this from Acts chapter 2, verse 38. When you become a Christian, when you are baptized into the Lord, you receive not only the forgiveness of your sins, but you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Power comes upon you. Power comes upon you. 
So if we take this verse and we apply it to every believer, when you become a Christian, this truth becomes your truth. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So you could easily read that sentence like this. But John, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Ed, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Dennis, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Chris, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Judy, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Peggy, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. All the way through this room, you can plug your name into that verse. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, that's easy for us to grasp within Christianity. I'm going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon me. Holy Spirit's going to dwell within me. Okay, that's wonderful. It is the second part of this verse that becomes a stumbling block for so many people. What I would refer to as post-semicolon living. Listen to this again. Picking up at the semicolon. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's post-semicolon living. They knew that they were going to receive power when the Holy Spirit came on them, and they also knew where they were going to use it. Every place, everywhere you go, you're going to be my witnesses. That was easy for them to figure out. It's a stumbling block in modern Christianity because a number of people say, I know that I'm a Christian, and I know that power has come upon me, and the Holy Spirit lives within me, but what in the world am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to pull off? How am I supposed to use that power? Well, it's simple. You have to use Paul's teaching from Philippians chapter 1. For to me to live is Christ. For to me to live is Christ. And when you lay that over Acts chapter 1 verse 8, here's what you will find. Power will come on you when the Holy Spirit comes. You will receive power when that happens. And you will live for Jesus. And you will become his witness. Because that's your purpose. For to me to live is Christ. So everywhere you go, you have the opportunity to live as Christ. You have the opportunity to live the way Jesus would. You have the opportunity to become a preacher, an evangelist, a witness, a missionary in your home, at work, in your neighborhood, with your hunting partners, the people you fish with, the people that you see wherever you're at. You have the opportunity to do that. That's pretty cool. It really is. That's post-semicolon living. Jesus living. I am going to live for Christ no matter where I'm at or what I'm doing. For me to live is Christ, Paul says. After the semicolon, everything changes. There is a very interesting teaching in the Jewish Talmud. They ask a question, the rabbis do, that sounds very much like this. Why is it that God created mankind one at a time rather than in mass, like he created the animals. A lot of people would wonder about that. The Jewish rabbis spend a lot of time kicking it around. Here's the answer to their own question. By God creating mankind one at a time, rather than in mass, he taught us to focus on one person at a time, just like he does. And within the Talmud, they have this statement. Save one person, save the world. Save one person, save the world. Now, if we want to put that in the realm of New Testament Christianity and get out of the Jewish teaching, here's what we learn. 
We're going to go to the book of James. James chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. We could go to the book of Jude and read verse 23 and see how he says this same kind of thing. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. One at a time. I'm going to save them one at a time. It is so interesting to me how the world can embrace that idea. Here's a few people that understand what the Jewish Talmud is talking about. About a year ago, I believe it was a year ago in April, there was a shooting at a theater in Colorado. There were some fellas there that grabbed hold of that save one life idea. A guy named Jonathan Blunt, another one named Matthew McGinn, another one named Alex Teva. All three of those guys at the moment that the shooting started chose to take their own bodies and place them over their girlfriends, protecting them. Each one lost their lives and their girlfriends lived as a result of it. There was another lady in there named Stephanie Davies who was sitting with a friend of hers named Allie Young. Allie was shot by the gunman right through the neck, started bleeding out. She fell on the floor in front of Stephanie. Stephanie, rather than running with the rest of the crowd, fell down over her friend, placed her hand over the wound, plugged the hole, and with her other hand pulled out her cell phone and called 911, saving a number of other people that were in that theater. The whole time that Stephanie was laying there with her hand on Allie's neck, Allie was telling her to save herself, to run, to get out of there. And Stephanie chose to stay, dial the phone, help her friend. By the way, Allie Young survived as a result of that. Well, they understood the physical application of it. The spiritual application is to snatch people from the fire, to pull them out of the world and introduce them to heaven, to introduce them to the things of God. Give them a new life. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. And that's what he does. Well, that still begs the question for a lot of people. How do I do that? How do I pull it off? I'm just not sure how that works. Well, the answer is really simple. It is by adopting the attitude that Paul had. What a lot of people don't realize is that when Paul wrote this verse in Philippians chapter 1, in fact, when he wrote the entire book of Philippians, he was locked up in jail falsely imprisoned. He was in jail writing for me to live as Christ, but to die as gain. Over and over and over again throughout the course of the book of Philippians, he would speak of a theme of joy, so much so that he would say, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Paul grabbed hold of an idea of joy that was contrary to everyone else around him. Paul said, this is how I'm going to choose to live. Jesus living is joy-filled living. Let me show you at least two contrary ideas. We're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians. Or I'm sorry, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17, Paul is on a missionary journey. He is sharing the gospel in all kinds of new places. He's now come to Athens, a place of great philosophies, a lot of thinkers in Athens. In Acts chapter 17 verse 18, Paul would call two of those groups out. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. 
Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now look at both of these groups. He says there was a group of Epicurean philosophers. The Epicureans were a unique group of people, kind of the the grandfathers, if you will, of the humanist movement. Everything that the Epicureans taught was about you. You're supposed to live in whatever way makes you happy. As long as it doesn't negatively affect somebody else, you do whatever you want. Eat, drink, be merry, make life a party. What they were shooting for within the Epicurean philosophy was to live from one high point in life to the next. That's a hard thing to do. It really is. What you find is that the next high point has to be a little higher than the previous high point if you're going to live that way. So it forces you into all kinds of different situations. So there was a group of Epicureans out there saying, life is a party, just be happy, chase your own happiness, don't worry about anybody else. Then on the other side of the coin, there was a group of people called the Stoic philosophers. The Stoic philosophers had a mantra that sounded like this, life is to be endured. Life is just to be endured. And that's how they lived. There were very few highs in their life, there were very few lows in their lives. They tried to achieve flatline living. We're just going to endure our time here until it's finally over, and then we'll get to leave. Or probably in the Epicurean philosophy, we'll die, and that'll be the end of this misery that we've been having to go through. That's how the Stoics felt. Well, Paul shows up, and he starts to preach a completely different message than what the Epicureans grabbed hold of, or even what the Stoics grabbed hold of. He started to preach a different type of living. And it was so curious to them that they would actually say, the Epicureans and the Stoics both, what is this babbler talking about? What the babbler was talking about was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What he was talking about was Jesus living. For to me to live is Christ, which becomes a joy-filled life. It becomes evident to everybody else around us. So confusing to them, they couldn't even grasp it. But Paul was teaching them how to rejoice in everything. The Epicureans certainly couldn't understand the deep valleys. The Stoics did everything they could to avoid them. Paul says, even when you fall into them, learn how to rejoice. For to me to live is Christ. The Lord is everywhere with me. Paul would carry that teaching on out to the church in Corinth, chapter 10, when he says things like this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's Jesus living. For to me, to live is Christ. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, it's easy for us to put that in the realm of eating and drinking. Let's put it in some other situations. Whether you are married or single, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you have children or never have, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you are at work, at home, or someplace else, Do it all for the glory of God. Whether you are driving down the road or stopped at a stoplight, do it all for the glory of God. Whether the person that just passed you and cut you off is a Christian or not, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you are hunting or fishing, do it all for the glory of God. And on and on and on that list can go. You see, when Paul says, for to me to live is Christ, that's what he's talking about. I want to take Jesus into every aspect of what I do. And as a result of that, people see it. Here you are, a person that's giving glory to God. And I'm not talking about some holy, sanctified way of talking so that it captures people's attention. I'm talking about Jesus living. 
so that they look at you and say, there's something different. There is something unique about that individual. I wonder what it is. And they begin to investigate. And when they investigate, you snatch them from the fire. You turn them from the error of their ways. You show them eternal life in Christ through joy-filled living that you choose to apply everywhere you go. In the process of it, you will have the chance to direct people towards heaven. Did you catch the the second half of the teaching in Philippians chapter 1? If you didn't, go back there with me. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's heaven teaching right there. For to me, to live is Christ. There are a lot of people that think, just like the Stoics did, that we just have to endure this life, and then we get our reward. That's not what Paul's teaching. Paul is teaching, for me to live is Christ. I'm going to make the most of the time that I have on this earth. Let's look again at Billy Graham. He's 95 years old. He had one more sermon to preach. He had one more message that he needed to deliver. And that's the way we ought to all go out. Rather than thinking, I've done my time, it's somebody else's turn. Nope, I'm going to use the years that I have on this earth until God calls me home. I got one more message to preach. No matter what it is, I got one more message to preach. That's the way Paul did it. And then I'll gain. It isn't about just getting this life behind us. Here, we're supposed to live for Christ. Enjoy it, for heaven's sakes. God gave it to you. He wants you to have the desires of your heart, no question about it. But He wants you to understand Jesus living. For to me, to live is Christ. And then afterwards, I will gain. It's very interesting to me, the questions that people have about heaven. They are as numerous as the stars in the sky. What's heaven going to be like? What's it going to be like when we get to walk on the streets of gold? What's it going to be like forever? What's eternity like? Those are questions that all kinds of people have. And and those questions come out all the time. Those questions become their own openings for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of heaven with other people. It's been confusing forever. You realize that John, as he was writing what God gave him for the book of Revelation, had to grab hold of whatever he could get that would help him describe heaven. So he talked about a wedding banquet. He talked about the bride dressed in white coming after the bridegroom. He used things like streets of gold and gates of pearls and walls of jewels to try to describe what it was, but those are just earthly ways of describing it. And quite honestly, for many people, myself included, they fall short. I, don't, I, I can't grasp gates of pearls that big. I've never seen an oyster that size. How is that going to work? It's hard for me to understand. You have no idea how excited I was about asphalt. So gold paving, I don't know what that's going to be like. That's this totally bizarre idea. So why don't you think of it this way? Heaven is full of mountains prettier than anything you've ever seen. The sky in heaven is more beautiful than anything you've ever seen. If you were at Thursday Night Pursuits, Jim Ray did a video for us this last week that had stunning pictures of the sky around Libby. Some of those during the daylight, some of them at night, sunset and sunrise pictures that he shot from the cabinets. They were gorgeous. Every day, God gives a sunrise and a sunset for those that are willing to appreciate it. In heaven, it'll be better. You want to know how I know that? Because Paul says, but to die is gain. It'll be better. The rivers will be beautiful, better than anything we've ever seen. The hunting will be better than it is in 2013. We will gain. You see how you can apply all of that? But it still leaves you with questions. And some of them are very real. People will say things like this. The Bible teaches that there's no marriage in heaven, but I have loved being married. 
I can't imagine what it's going to be like. I'm one of those people. We've been married for 24 years. It's been a fairy tale. We have loved it. Now, that's not to say that it's always just been this wonderful thing and we've never gone through any challenges. Tina and I have faced challenges just like everybody else has, but we faced them together. And marriage has been so cool. For 24 years, we can look back and we say this all the time. We can't imagine heaven without one another. The teaching of the Bible that says that God's gone to prepare a room for each one of us has Tina and I saying, make sure ours are together. There are some people that say, God's building a mansion for you in heaven. And and Tina and I will say to God, we don't need a mansion. We need a duplex with a pass-through door. That's all we need. We'll make it easier for you. But the Bible teaches that there's no marriage in heaven. So what do we do with that? We recognize that here we have loved the relationship so much. The Bible says, Paul says, that in heaven we will gain. Does that mean that there's some clause that we don't know of? I don't know. All we know is that the Bible says we will gain. People will ask questions like this. What what about pets? Will there be pets in heaven? I'm one of those people too. I want to know if there's going to be pets in heaven because they've provided so much joy here. What would heaven be like without them? Here's what we know. When we die, we will gain. So I can't help but think they're there. We have a pillow in our house that says heaven is a place where all the dogs you have loved before have already gone. Maybe that's true. We know this. I've told you this before. I know that there are animals in heaven. There are horses there. Jesus rides a white horse. So do I. (laughs) So there have to be animals there. But if there aren't, we will gain. Paul says we will gain. So you take the joys that you have experienced here in Jesus living. For to me to live is Christ and magnify him by a thousand or a million or a billion. We will gain. When Jesus touches us, and we've been talking about that for the last several months, when Jesus touches us, we've looked at all the practical ways that we live here on earth. When he touches us, we live in those things. Well, today's our last message on this, and I want you to know this. When he touches you, you live forever and you will gain. That's heaven. You will gain. It will be better. And Jesus Christ is the only way that that happens. Eternal life for us is determined at the moment that we accept Christ. Eternity doesn't begin at death. It begins at salvation and conversion. And you begin living with Jesus right there. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And folks, listen to this part. There's another side to that. When you reject Christ, eternal life begins for you as well. But the rest of it goes like this. For to me to live is for myself. For to me to live is for Satan. And to die is to lose everything. That's the way that verse reads for the non-believer. But for the believer, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For when he touches us, we live forever. There's an old teaching ancient teaching says that telescopes were created to bring distant things close and microscopes were created to make small things big if the christian lives the right way he or she can be both for the non-believer a telescope as well as a microscope because when we figure out jesus living for to me to live is christ And that's a joy-filled life that other people see. The non-believer who would say God seems so distant begins to see God get near. And the non-believer who would look at your life and see you living for Christ, they would say Jesus seems so small in the universe 
they begin to see him get bigger. You can be both a telescope and a microscope in other people's lives by simply learning out how Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 works. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To learn how to live heavenward while on this earth and introduce other people to it is one of the greatest joys you will ever have. But you have to be at a place where you can do that, where you can say, I am living for Christ I'm not just living for myself. I'm not just living for the people around me. I'm not just living for the world and all the fleshly desires that are attached to it. For to me to live is Christ. And I'm looking forward to what I will gain in heaven when the timing is right. And to help people understand this. Jesus has touched me and I will live forever. I hope that's the message of your life. I really do. Why don't you stand and pray with us. If you would like to talk to somebody about what it means to be touched by Jesus, we can do that today. By all means, we want to. If you've worshipped with us for a while and, and you want to place your membership here, we would love for you to do that. And by the way, we ask people to make a public identification with the body. There are a lot of other churches that don't do that. You just attend and you're instantly a member. We ask people to publicly identify with the body. It's a way of putting your life and your influence with a local congregation. That's all it is. If you are an immersed believer in Jesus Christ, church membership is a matter of standing up and saying, I want to be a part of what's going on here. This is my church, and I am a part of what's happening here. If you want to talk to somebody about church membership, we can do that. And maybe you came in today with some heavy burdens, and you need somebody to pray with you. The Bible says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. Why don't you go and pray with somebody? Jesus will be there in your midst. They'll pray with you. You can leave those burdens here. You don't have to take them with you. Let's pray and then we'll offer the invitation. Well, Father in heaven, I do know that people came here today carrying huge burdens. Some of those are the burdens of salvation. They've been trying to figure it out in all kinds of different ways and trying to do it on their own and that just doesn't work. We know it. So Lord, I pray that you'll carry that burden today by showing them your love. I know there's others that have carried a burden of community and they, they feel very alone and they wonder about their purpose and their place in the world and the, the church gives us a beautiful expression of both of those things. Lord, I want to pray for the people that have carried a burden of community. And Lord, I know that there are others that just came with burdens, heavy ones. Would you carry those today as well? Encourage them, encourage all of us to lay those things before you. And Father, lift them from our shoulders that we might live for you without them. Touch us in that special way. Father, these next few moments are yours. I pray that you will declare them holy and do what only you can through them in each of our hearts, in each of our lives. Father, make us responders. In Jesus' name, amen.